Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with talented composer and clarinetist Ben Goldberg. He was born and raised in Denver, and lately he's been in Brooklyn. And in between both of these geographies, he has woven a very cool biography. Over the course of our conversation, he discussed his dreams, literally and figuratively, early gigs, awards that he's received, and many more surprises. Please dig this interview, my friends. First of all, Ben, thank you for taking a little time to talk with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And then I'm going to go ahead and dive in here and ask you, what has been going on with you lately? I decided to spend a few months living in Brooklyn uh, this fall. So I'm in Brooklyn at the moment, and I'm taking the opportunity to spend some time here uh, playing with all the wonderful musicians, meeting new people, and uh, kind of trying to open my mind and open my ears to all the amazing sounds that are uh, being made uh, in New York City. What is it about Brooklyn? I always hear so much anymore about Brooklyn being kind of the haven for jazz. What, what, as far as you know, living there, why is it that there's been so many musicians that have come into Brooklyn specifically? That I'm not sure of because I'm not, I haven't been around long enough to have witnessed no the movement from, let's say, Manhattan to Brooklyn. But uh, the, the only thing I can report from my experience is that there's just uh, uh, so many wonderful musicians who are living in Brooklyn and and uh, have formed uh, very friendly and supportive and artistically open-minded community here um, so that there's a lot taking place. There's a lot of, a lot of um, research musical research taking place, a lot of composition, uh, a lot of new approaches to improvising, and, and just a lot of, basically a lot of very beautiful music being made here. Right on. Speaking of geography, let's go back to your life in the beginnings. You were, were born and raised in Denver, correct? That's correct. Oh, I wasn't born in Denver, but I was raised mostly in Denver. That's correct. What was it about Denver that lent you, kind of to give you a, an opportunity to love music and love jazz? Did you see any live jazz there? Kind of talk to me a little bit about yeah. Denver. Well, let me just say that the, I think the main advantage, um, and I think a lot of musicians would report something very similar, the main advantage for me growing up in Denver was a very strong and well-funded and well-organized public school musical education program. They were serious about it. They had excellent, wonderful teachers uh, visiting the elementary schools. They had good band directors. Once you got to middle school and high school, there was like all, you know, citywide band, citywide jazz band, orchestra, statewide activities. Um, and this, this type of thing is just indispensable for any, any kid who's interested in music, uh, whether or not they they have a dream of becoming a professional musician and or or not it's just this you know it's just i can't even i can't possibly say how important this is it was to my musical education and so many people that i know why did you pick the clarinet first my mother played the clarinet and when yeah. i was little i used to I, I mean she played really through college um and then she had uh, kind of stopped playing, but when I was little, I used to beg her to please take that black thing out of the box and play. <laughs> I didn't know what it was called. I loved the smell of it, and I loved the sound of it. It was so mysterious to me, and 
So in some ways, there was very little question for me. I wasn't pushed into it or guided into it. I just was crazy about the clarinet from as far back as I can remember. Yeah. Well, and then it said that your dad went to a pawn shop and found an alto for 40 bucks. What was that first horn like for you? Oh, that was a cool horn, man. I wish I still had that alto saxophone. I mean, I don't play saxophone anymore. Yeah. Uh, on, on the advice of some of my uh, closest uh, friends. But um, that was a fine horn. It was some kind of no-name saxophone. It was, it, I think it said Pioneer on it. But it was made in Elkhart, and probably, most likely it was a knockoff from by some other company, Martin or Busher. It must have been something like that because that was a really nice horn. Yeah. So in junior high, I'm going to stay in this area here, you were yeah. second clarinet next to Andy Stevens. Talk about what that experience was like. Well, it was my luck. It was my good fortune because Andy Stevens, yeah, he was one year ahead of me in school, and I just we just happened to go to the same junior high school. Uh, this guy could do everything on the clarinet. I mean, everything. And, and you know, he was only in eighth grade or something. Yeah, eighth grade when I met him. And I, did, I had no idea prior to that what a clarinet could do, really. Yeah. And here I'm sitting right next to this guy who's just like an absolute wizard and master of the clarinet. I mean, that when I say it was my good fortune and my good luck, at what, you know, just go, skipping a few years later, Andy, when they had the very first uh, international high school clarinet contest, which happened to take place in Denver, of all places, um, Andy won it. <laughs> he came in first. So, cool. I mean, it wasn't just anybody that happened to be good at the clarinet. It was actually like the guy that was like the best young clarinetist in the world that I was sitting next to. And it really opened my ears and it really, it put me on notice. Like I was like, Andy, how do you do that? And he said that he just practiced an hour a day ever since he was in kindergarten or something like that. So it, it that was the best advice I ever got. It put me on notice. Like, okay, it's time to start practicing. Wow. That's cool. So when did you decide that you wanted to get into music? When you were young? When you got older? When when was that kind of momentous shift? When did that happen for you? Well, it wasn't really a decision as far as I can remember. It was just more like I was just, I just felt so drawn to music. I mean, I, whenever I heard live music, I just felt like I want to be doing that. I want to, it's like I want to be those guys, you know, in the band playing that amazing stuff and because it just gave me such a feeling so it was really just more like just more like a gravitational pull yeah yeah so it, in your bio it says your musical life was a dichotomy you played jazz on the sax and classical music on the clarinet did one yeah. did, did did that kind of those two different worlds lend to making you a better musician how did that work on your brain well i think so ultimately because well, for one thing, I mean, this is this is just a kind of thing that back in the day was in some sense enforced because if you wanted to play jazz in the, in the school jazz band, there wasn't a part for a clarinetist. You had to play the saxophone. Um, so that's why I picked up the saxophone because I really wanted to learn jazz. Um, and, and, and the training on the clarinet was, as far as I was, as I could tell, it was strictly classical. So I went to music camp and I practiced the hell out of the clarinet and uh, later on in high school and college, I just practiced all the time. And, and eventually I, I kind of started feeling a couple of things. One, I wanted to play jazz and I wanted to play the clarinet. I wasn't that great of a saxophone player. And anyway, there's so many saxophone players. Like 
that saxophone is well taken care of. And I'm talking about a time really like, you know, like things have changed a lot because just maybe like 25 years ago or something like that. If you want to, if you play jazz on the clarinet, there weren't that many people doing it. And there certainly weren't that many people doing it in some kind of, um, you know, trying to do something new with it or something. I mean, there were people. I'm not saying there was nobody, but I'm saying that the, compared to being a saxophone player, it's as if the field was wide open. Yeah. So at any rate, yeah, I did want to, I, I did want to use the clarinet and I wanted to play improvised music and jazz. And yeah, I think that it, I, I, I had some benefit from those years of, of strict classical training. I mean, it, it showed me how to play the instrument, that's for sure. Well, and then your studies went on. You went and got a BA at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and studied with yeah. Rosario Mazeo. What was that like? That's correct. Unbelievable. <laughs> that guy, Rosario Mazeo. I mean, he was like the, he just, you know, he just happened to be, he had actually been associated with the place I went to college, but he had retired from that. And he was just living in Carmel. And there I was in school in Santa Cruz. It was like a, an hour drive or something to get to less than that 45 minute drive to get to his place. And this guy, I mean, he was like the world's greatest clarinet teacher, or at least one of the two world's greatest clarinet teachers from his era. I mean, he was, he was fairly old. He must've been in his mid seventies when I began studying with him and he had been teaching since like 1923 or something like that, you know? And he, I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that, that, the majority of clarinetists playing in the top orchestras of the world had been his students. Yeah. That's how influential this guy was. So like wow. when I went to audition for him to be his student, he asked me to play something. I played a little something and he said, well, you are not a clarinetist, but it's nice to meet somebody who should be a clarinetist. And he invited me to study with him. And I worked so hard. I had no idea. I didn't even know you could work that hard yeah. on the clarinet. And I and a lot of things that had seemed like insolvable technical problems, we were able to solve. And that was an amazing experience. Would you say he was one of your best teachers or the best teacher you had? Well, he was one of my best teachers. And he... and. It, in common between him and some other people who have been really important teachers to me was the emphasis on and and the the uh, research into how to get to the ab the absolute fundamentals of what you're trying to learn whether it's music theory or improvisational ability or how to play an instrument. One thing that all of my my really important teachers have had in common was the ability to see deeply into the fundamentals of the problem and to find a creative way to address those fundamentals, to find a way to to investigate the building blocks of what you're doing and to find out for yourself how they how they work and how they fit together. So that's that's what Rosario Mateo had. Later on, I took a lesson with Steve Lacey, just one lesson. And that was mind-blowing in a different, uh, kind of like a different dimension, but actually 
in a, with a very similar principle to what I just described, which is the ability to see deeply into the fundamentals and 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 suggest like actual like like ways of personally investigating those fundamentals. And and it was mentioned that Steve Lacey is one of your musical heroes. How how did that come about, and why is he one of your heroes? Well, it's just the sound. It's just um, from the first time I ever heard that sound, I, it was like a moth to a flame, man. It's just like I couldn't get enough of it. I knew it. It was like the most delicious thing you ever tasted, and all you you just want more. I mean, I can't explain it. It was just like when I heard that, when I heard him play, and when I heard what he did with the phrasing and and the uh, everything, the sound, the phrasing. Say one other thing that was mentioned too is that the music of Thelonious Monk huge inspiration for you. Yeah. And I was just well, going to ask you about here's that. Here's another stroke of luck. When I was, I mean, when I, it's pretty much like when I was like nine years old or something, I and I thought like, hey, I think I like jazz. I'm going to go to the store and look for a jazz record. I just, I, for, I mean, this I can't explain this, but I walked up to the jazz record section and the first thing I saw was this uh, record by Thelonious Monk so I bought it you know back in the day when you could buy an LP for like two ninety eight or something like that and I don't know maybe I just liked his name or the photograph on the cover I have no idea it was this unbelievable solo Monk record not one of the Riverside ones but it was it came out in this label called GNP I think it was just called Thelonious Monk and it was yeah. solo and it blew my mind I couldn't believe the sound that I heard yeah it was just like the most beautiful thing and also in a, in a way kind of like the craziest thing I'd ever listened to. Yeah. I have no idea why I picked up that record, but ever since then, and then when I, when, once I started investigating Steve Lacey and one thing I found out of course was that when he was younger, he had a group with Roswell Rudd where they played only Thelonious Monk songs and they learned all the songs that they, that, you know, all the Monk tunes. Then that also like, then because I was kind of obsessed with Steve Lacey, then I thought like, okay, well here, now I know something about one of, one of the uh, sources that he investigated. So then it made, it made me redouble my efforts in relation to the music of Thelonious Monk, which you can never get to the bottom of that music. I play those songs all the time and, and it, it, each song teaches me something every time I play it, every time. Wow. That's great. Speaking of playing, you uh, you had the new Klezmer Trio from 1995. You had three CDs and you toured. Talk to me a little bit about that experience with that trio. Oh, that was so much fun. That was really a blast because we kind of stumbled on it, you know. Like uh, like I was playing Klezmer music. I was, you know, playing at like weddings and stuff and like really studying. I really tried to learn exactly how you play that music, all the little intricate embellishments everything about the harmony. I was trying to write songs that sounded like that stuff. I was really deeply into it. And at the same time, you know, I kind of like, I, 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 I was, uh, I, I always kind of thought of myself basically as uh, what in those days was called an avant-garde musician. I don't think that word really applies anymore to anybody, but, but in those days, like just like even stylistically, like that to me, that was like the place to be. And so eventually I just thought like, well, 
here I, I've got all this, all this stylistic knowledge from playing all the klezmer music, but what, what if we just kind of opened that up in a, in, in a sense, kind of like in what you might call a free jazz type of approach to it. And, uh, Ever, you know, from the very first moment that I, I said, come on, guys, let's do this. And as soon as we did it, it ever, it's, it's like a bomb went off in my head, you know, just like in terms of like, you know, not necessarily like a stylistic thing, but really like all of a sudden there I was like using all of this knowledge that, that I had like painstakingly developed and like just feeling this, this, powerful spirit inside that was like unleashing it and and it really was like like i had a little glimpse just for a moment of like how strong music is or how strong music could be so that was like super important to me plus we had a blast made some records and and i wrote a bunch of tunes and we took we used to just take you know like old klezmer tunes which are wonderful songs i mean it's just full of full of all kinds of mysterious currents and, you know, just like find a way to play them and extend them and improvise. And, and I started to, it really opened up the world of harmony to me because I started to find ways that I could superimpose different keys on top of each other and be playing simultaneously in several keys and, and, and that type of thing. It was so much fun. Just had a great time. Yeah, that's cool. You know, and the one thing over your career is you've been, You've gotten all kinds of awards. You've been in the Downbeat Critics Poll. Um, you went to the Sundance Institute, Film Composers Lab. There's been a lot of awards. But what I want yeah. to ask is this, not what you think maybe one of your favorite awards was, but what was there one award that you got just kind of blindsided? You were like, wow, that's cool. Gee, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Well, I will say that I'm not sure if this is an award, but but one thing that was that was that came at the right time for me was a, a commission, like a grant. There was a commission from Chamber Music America. They call it the New Jazz Works Program. And it's funded by the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. And, and you, you know, you submit an application to Chamber Music America and they review it and then they, they give some number of awards every year, which consists of funding to, to, to uh, uh, compose some new music and I got one of those in t 2010 and at first I was kind of terrified because I I had made a proposal but I wasn't sure if I could follow through on it but so I kind of sat on it for a year not knowing what to do um, and but then eventually I started working with this book that's called Summa Lyrica that I had been reading for a very long time it was written by a man called Alan Grossman uh, and it's a book it's of what you call what he calls speculative poetics. It's kind of like a book of statements, philosophical statements about poetry. Mm. And all of a sudden, I was writing songs that with lyrics that were taken from this book, and the book is, has, has some pretty crazy stuff in it, like little sayings that it could take you mm. a whole lifetime to try to understand. And that, well, and then that became Orphic Machine. That, that record came out, the record of it came out last March. And that was really like, for me, that was like, in terms of awards or, or, or opportunities, it, it turned out to be a really pivotal, pivotal thing for me because 
I really devoted myself to the composition. I really devoted myself, and I was so happy with the results. And it, I really felt like it, it, uh, it just, in a way, it kind of helped me see myself a little bit differently in terms of like my, in a sense, my ability to follow through on a big project and a serious project. And also that, that doing that, the work itself and also the result, it kind of changed my perspective on things. So yeah, that I, I would say that that was like the right thing at the right time. Right on. If you look back on your life of creativity, is there a period that's more prolific than another, say now or maybe, you know, back in the 90s? Do you, what do you think? Well, that's a good question. Um, in terms of being prolific, I feel like, for one thing, I feel like the work takes different forms because uh, for a long time, I just wanted to be a clarinet, a good clarinet player. And then I want, then after that, I got more, much more interested in composing. Like, I, like I wanted to like make some real compositions, you know, and you can, th that era maybe started with that record that I made called the door, the hat, the chair, the fact, and then extended through, um, subatomic particle homesick blues. And, and then the record that's called Unfold Ordinary Mind, I feel like, was part of that. And then, of course, the one I just mentioned called Orphic Machine. I mean, I feel like that's like an era for me of, like, composition, where I was really focused on that. Strangely, I now find myself back in the world of just wanting to play the clarinet, at least at the moment. And I feel like that's the thing that I'm really, really trying to wake that up for myself as much as I can in terms of like the, the focus of my creative activity. And so it's at any rate, it shifts, you know, in terms of being prolific, if, if you measure that by uh, the work that gets put out there, in a sense, I'm being more prolific now than ever before, but that's partly just because I've been around for a while and more opportunities are opening up opportunities to to uh, release records and uh, put on concerts and so that's a nice thing you know yeah absolutely so we've kind of touched on some some big names in music that have influenced you so I ask you this mm -hmm. if you could go back in time and witness a show in history in the annals of jazz who would you see and where would you go well I would go to that. That whatever that date was that got recorded with Charlie Parker and Fats Navarro, let's say that uh, it was in some club like Birdland or something like that, and there was there is a recording, and it's just some of the craziest and astonish most astonishing music that you've ever heard. So I would be curious. I, I don't know. I'd, I'd really be curious. What was it like to be in the presence of Charlie Parker? especially on a night like that when all kinds of amazing stuff was happening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let, let me ask you this. Okay. What, uh, what's the greatest thing about waking up for you every day? The greatest thing about waking up? 
Yeah. At the moment, it's that I wake up right next to my clarinet and I can just jump to bed. And I had an amazing dream last night where I saw my father. He passed away about six or seven years ago. And in my dream last night, I saw my father and he he showed me a little melody and he asked me to he showed me this little melody somehow and, and asked me to play it and when I woke up that melody was in my head and it was just like a little pattern of chord changes and uh, so I just got up and played that on the clarinet that was a really amazing feeling yeah that is amazing <laughs> totally cool I yeah I lost my father back in 08, and uh, I have some of those vestiges myself, so to be able to materialize oh. that kind of spirit, that's very, very cool. Yeah, um, yeah. So let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I have to say that I do love jazz, even though at the same time I kind of hate jazz. Um, <laughs> but I do love it, and I just can't get enough of it. I just like... I don't know why do I, I don't, couldn't say why I love it, but I know that when I hear somebody playing jazz and just doing it in their own way with unique phrasing and either going this way or that way just in the moment and making it work or even when it doesn't work, I just feel so much love, you know? I just feel like it's very frequently uh, an astonishing thing to be next to or to be part of or to try to do yourself. And I just feel like, I don't know. I mean, jazz is a music or what we call jazz. I want to be, let me just say in parentheses that, okay, the word jazz is definitely outdated, but let's go ahead and use it anyway without getting into that discussion. But, um, it's you know it's it's not the only music that's this way, but it is a music that that really is conceived of and created and and played in a moment. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's the only way that it works, which can be terrifying, or maybe it, yeah. it's always terrifying when you try to play it. That that fact that this can be absolutely terrifying. And yet there's no way around it. You can only go through it. You can't go around it. And and the and the feeling that you get when you're listening to somebody who's doing that is just, I mean, it's, you can't get that feeling any other way. I'm not saying that the music is superior to any other music because I'm crazy about rock music and I'm crazy about pop music and classical music and everything. So, you know, I can't, I'm not saying that one form of music is better, but there's something about, you know, either you could talk about the great players and each one having their own way of phrasing something, and even the not-so-great players, you know, <laughs> and people that you've never heard of until you walk into a room and you just hear somebody just playing an instrument and just sounding so fucking good, you know? It's just like, it gives you a feeling that you can't get any other way, so... I don't know if I can say too much more about that, but I, I'm finding, I, I'm finding, even though I've gone through like different phases 
myself in relation to the music that's referred to as jazz and like being disgusted by things or or uh, philosophical about it or whatever, I think that your question actually hits me at the right spot because I find more and more that I actually do love jazz. That's great. You nailed it. That's a great answer. Let me ask you one final question here. Let's say yes. we get together in, oh, let's go like around 15 years from now. And I call and I say, look, what's been going on lately? What are you going to want to tell me happened? What are you going to be happy to talk about? I'll be, I would be happy to talk about, the, <laughs> I'm just saying this because this is kind of my new project that I'm just trying to deal with. I'd be happy to tell you that I really did learn a whole bunch of old songs very thoroughly, Hokie Carmichael songs and Cole Porter songs and and uh, all kinds of beautiful songs from like the 20s and 30s. I'd be happy to tell you that. Cool. And Very cool. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll just leave it at that. Beautiful. Man, I tell you what, that I think is, is the perfect way to end. Ben, thank you for opening up. Thank you for giving me your time. I love your music and, and I appreciate you give me some of your time. Thanks, man. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Ben for his music, his innovation, and that vision of his. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.